द लॉ स्कूल ऑफ अमेरिका हॉस्टल पोजेशन द डिसाइजर मस्ट हैव एंटर्ड और यूज द लैंड विदाउट परमिशन फ्रॉम द ट्रू ओनर The decisor's motivations may be interpreted by the court in several ways, depending upon state law and precedent. Objective view: The land was used without true owner's permission and in a manner inconsistent with true owner's rights. Bad faith or intentional trespass view: The land was used with the adverse possessor's subjective intent to disregard or violate the actual property owner's rights. Good faith view: A few states require that the party claiming adverse possession must have mistakenly believed that it is their land. Some jurisdictions permit accidental adverse possession, as might occur as the result of a surveying error that places the boundary line between properties in the wrong location. Renters, hunters, or others who enter the land with permission are not taking possession that is hostile to the title owner's rights. Mistaken possession in some jurisdictions does not constitute hostility. Open and notorious use: The decisor must possess the property in a manner that is capable of being seen. That is. The decisor's use of the property must be sufficiently visible and apparent that it gives notice to the legal owner that someone may assert claim, and must be of such character that would give notice to a reasonable person. If the legal owner has actual knowledge of the use, this element is met. It can be also met by fencing, opening or closing gates, or an entry to the property, posted signs, crops, buildings, or animals that a diligent owner could be expected to know about. Continuous. The decisor claiming adverse possession must hold that property continuously for the entire statute of limitations period and use it as a true owner would for that time. Generally, the decisor's openly hostile possession must be continual, although not necessarily constant, without challenge or permission from the lawful owner. But breaks in use that are consistent with how an owner would use the property will not prevent an adverse possession claim. Occasional activity on the land with long gaps in activity fails the test of continuous possession. Courts have ruled that merely cutting timber at intervals, when not accompanied by other actions that demonstrate actual and continuous possession, fails to demonstrate continuous possession. If at any time during the statute of limitations period, the true owner ejects the decisor from the land either verbally or through legal action, and the decisor then returns and dispossesses him again, then the statute of limitations period begins anew. The statute of limitations applies only to the decisor's time on the property, not how long the true owner may have been dispossessed of it by, say, another decisor who then left the property. However, if adverse possession is continuous between two or more successive decisors without interruption, it may be possible for the second decisor to claim adverse possession for the entire period based upon a legal doctrine known as tacking. Exclusive use: The decisor holds the land to the exclusion of the true owner. There may be more than one adverse possessor taking as tenants in common, so long as the other elements are met. But adverse possession cannot be successfully claimed if, any time during the statutory period, the true owner uses the land for any reason. In addition to the basic elements of an adverse possession case, state law may require one or more additional elements to be proved by a person claiming adverse possession. Depending upon the state, additional requirements may include color of title. Claim of title or claim of right. Color of title and claim of title involve a legal document that appears incorrectly to give the decisor title. In some jurisdictions, the mere intent to take the land as one's own may constitute claim of right, with no documentation required. Other cases have determined that a claim of right exists if the person believes they have a rightful claim to the property, even if that belief is mistaken.
A negative example would be a timber thief who sneaks onto a property, cuts timber not visible from the road, and hauls the logs away at night. Their actions, though they demonstrate actual possession, also demonstrate knowledge of guilt, as opposed to claim of right. Good faith, in a minority of states, or bad faith, sometimes called the main doctrine although it is now abolished in Maine. Improvement, cultivation, or enclosure. Payment of property taxes. This may be required by statute, such as in California, or just a contributing element to a court's determination of possession. Both payment by the decisor and by the true owner are relevant. Dispossession of land owned by a governmental entity. Generally, a decisor cannot dispossess land legally owned by a government entity even if all other elements of adverse possession are met. One exception is when the government entity is acting like a business rather than a government entity. Consequences A decisor will be committing a civil trespass on the property he has taken and the owner of the property could cause him to be evicted by an action in trespass, ejectment, or by bringing an action for possession. All common law jurisdictions require that an ejectment action be brought within a specified time, after which the true owner is assumed to have acquiesced. The effect of a failure by the true landowner to evict the adverse possessor depends on the jurisdiction, but will eventually result in title by adverse possession. In 2008, due to the volume of adverse possession and boundary dispute cases throughout New York City, the New York State Legislature amended and limited the ability of land to be acquired by adverse possession. Prior to the 2008 amendment, to acquire property by adverse possession, all that was required was a showing that the possession constituted an actual invasion of or infringement upon the owner's rights. Approximately eight years after the 2008 amendment, on June 30, 2016, the New York State Appellate Division, First Department, for example, the appellate court covering the territory of Manhattan, determined the legal questions concerning the scope of rights acquired by adverse possession and how the First Department would treat claims of adverse possession where title had vested prior to 2008. The court specifically held that title to the adversely possessed property vested when the plaintiff satisfied the requirement of the statute in effect at the relevant time. In other words, if title had vested at some time after the 2008 amendment, a plaintiff would have to satisfy the adverse possession standards amended by the New York State Legislature in 2008. However, if title vested at some time before the 2008 amendment, a plaintiff would have lawfully acquired title to the disputed area by satisfying the pre-amendment standard for adverse possession. Hudson Square Hotel also resolved two often highly litigated issues in adverse possession cases where the air rights are more valuable than the underlying land itself, a, where, for example, in three-dimensional physical space, is an encroachment required in order for such encroachment to have any relevant operative effect or consequences under the law of adverse possession, and, b, what property rights are acquired as a result of title to the ground floor area, for example, the land, vesting with the plaintiff. In Hudson Square Hotel the defendant argued that the plaintiff had only acquired title to the underlying land, but not the air rights, because the plaintiff never encroached above the two-story building. This argument was motivated, in part, by the fact that the zoning laws at the time permitted the owner of the land to build, for example, develop, up to six times the square footage of the ground floor area. For example, if the disputed area was 1,000 square feet, there would be 6,000 square feet of buildable square footage to potentially be won or lost by adverse possession. The court clarified, it is the encroachment on the land, that allows title to pass to the adverse possessor. In other words, the plaintiff did not need to encroach upon all six stories in order to adversely possess the air rights above the land. The court also held, 
with title to land come air rights. In other words, by acquiring title to the land, for example, ground floor area, the plaintiff also acquired ownership of the more valuable air rights that were derivative of title to the underlying land. In other jurisdictions, the decisor acquires merely an equitable title, the landowner is considered to be a trustee of the property for the decisor. Adverse possession extends only to the property actually possessed. If the original owner had a title to a greater area, or volume, of property, the decisor does not obtain all of it. The exception to this is when the decisor enters the land under a color of title to an entire parcel, their continuous and actual possession of a small part of that parcel will perfect their title to the entire parcel defined in their color of title. Thus a decisor need not build a dwelling on, or farm on, every portion of a large tract in order to prove possession, as long as their title does correctly describe the entire parcel. In some jurisdictions, a person who has successfully obtained title to property by adverse possession may, optionally, bring an action in land court to quiet title of record in their name on some or all of the former owner's property. Such action will make it simpler to convey the interest to others in a definitive manner, and also serves as notice that there is a new owner of record, which may be a prerequisite to benefits such as equity loans or judicial standing as an abutter. Even if such action is not taken, the title is legally considered to belong to the new title holder, with most of the benefits and duties, including paying property taxes to avoid losing title to the tax collector. The effects of having a stranger to the title paying taxes on property may vary from one jurisdiction to another. Many jurisdictions have accepted tax payment for the same parcel from two different parties without raising an objection or notifying either party that the other had also paid. Adverse possession does not typically work against property owned by the public. The process of adverse possession would require a thorough analysis if private property is taken by eminent domain, after which control is given to a private corporation, such as a railroad, and then abandoned. Where land is registered under a Torrance title registration system or similar, special rules apply. It may be that the land cannot be affected by adverse possession, as was the case in England and Wales from 1875 to 1926, and as is still the case in the state of Minnesota or that special rules apply. Adverse possession may also apply to territorial rights. In the United States, Georgia lost an island in the Savannah River to South Carolina in 1990, when South Carolina had used fill from dredging to attach the island to its own shore. Since Georgia knew of this yet did nothing about it, the U.S. Supreme Court, which has original jurisdiction in such matters, granted this land to South Carolina, although the Treaty of Beaufort, 1787, explicitly specified that the river's islands belonged to Georgia. Squatters' rights. Most cases of adverse possession deal with boundary line disputes between two parties who hold clear title to their property. The term squatters' rights has no precise and fixed legal meaning. In some jurisdictions the term refers to temporary rights available to squatters that prevent them, in some circumstances, from being removed from property without due process. For example, in England and Wales reference is usually to Section 6 of the Criminal Law Act 1977. In the United States, no ownership rights are created by mere possession, and a squatter may only take possession through adverse possession if the squatter can prove all elements of an adverse possession claim for the jurisdiction in which the property is located. As with any adverse possession claim, if a squatter abandons the property for a period, or if the rightful owner effectively removes the squatter's access even temporarily during the statutory period, or gives their permission, the clock usually stops. For example, 
If the required period in a given jurisdiction is 20 years and the squatter is removed after only 15 years, the squatter loses the benefit of that 15-year possession, for example, the clock is reset at zero. If that squatter later retakes possession of the property, that squatter must, to acquire title, remain on the property for a full 20 years after the date on which the squatter retook possession. In this example, the squatter would have held the property for a total of 35 years, the original 15 years plus the later 20 years, to acquire title. Depending on the jurisdiction, one squatter may or may not pass along continuous possession to another squatter, known as tacking. Tacking is defined as the joining of consecutive periods of possession by different persons to treat the periods as one continuous period, especially, the adding of one's own period of land possession to that of a prior possessor to establish continuous adverse possession for the statutory period. There are three types of privity, privity of contract, privity of possession, and privity of estate. One of the three types of privity is required in order for one adverse possessor to tack their time on to another adverse possessor in order to complete the statutory time period. One-way tacking occurs is when the conveyance of the property from one adverse possessor to another is founded upon a written document, usually an erroneous deed, indicating color of title. A lawful owner may also restart the clock at zero by giving temporary permission for the occupation of the property, thus defeating the necessary continuous and hostile element. Evidence that a squatter paid rent to the owner would defeat adverse possession for that period. England and Wales Squatting became a criminal offense in England Wales under Section 144 of the Legal Aid, Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act 2012. This section also inserted an immediate power of entry to the premises into Section 17 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. United States In the United States, the concept of squatter's rights is generally used to refer to a specific form of adverse possession where the decisor holds no title to any properties adjoining the property under dispute. In most jurisdictions of the United States, few squatters can meet the legal requirements for adverse possession. Comparison to homesteading Adverse possession is in some ways similar to homesteading. Like the decisor, the homesteader may gain title to property by using the land and fulfilling certain other conditions. In homesteading, however, the possession of the property is not hostile, the land is either considered to have no legal owner or is owned by the government. The government allows the homesteader to use the land with the expectation that the homesteader who fulfills the requirements necessary for the homestead will gain title to the property. The principles of homesteading and squatter's rights embody the most basic concept of property and ownership, which can be summarized by the adage possession is nine-tenths of the law meaning the person who uses the property effectively owns it. Likewise, the adage, use it or lose it, applies. The principles of homesteading and squatter's rights predate formal property laws, to a large degree, modern property law formalizes and expands these simple ideas. The principle of homesteading is that if no one is using or possessing property, the first person to claim it and use it consistently over a specified period owns the property. Squatter's rights embodies the idea that if one property owner neglects property and fails to use it, and a second person starts to tend and use the property, then after a certain period the first person's claim to the property is lost and ownership transfers to the second person, who is actually using the property. The legal principle of homesteading, then, is a formalization of the homestead principle in the same way that the right of adverse possession is a formalization of the pre-existing principle of squatter's rights. 
The essential ideas behind the principles of homesteading and squatter's rights hold generally for any type of item or property of which ownership can be asserted by simple use or possession. In modern law, homesteading and the right of adverse possession refer exclusively to real property. In the realm of personal property, the same impulse is summarized by the adage finders, keepers and is formalized by laws and conventions concerning abandoned property. Copyrights Some legal scholars have proposed the extension of the concept of adverse possession to intellectual property law, in particular to reconcile intellectual property and antitrust law or to unify copyright law and property law. Adverse possession of easements Some jurisdictions merge the concept of adverse possession with that of prescription, so that adverse possession may be used to gain various incorporeal rights to land as well as land itself. Under this theory, adverse possession grants only those rights in the deceased property that are taken by the decisor. For example, a decisor might choose to take an easement rather than the entire fee title to the property. In this manner, it is possible to deceive an easement, under the legal doctrine of prescription. This must also be done openly but need not be exclusive. Prescription is governed by different statutory and common law time limits to adverse possession. It is common practice in cities such as New York, where builders often leave sidewalk space or plazas in front of their buildings to meet zoning requirements, to close public areas they own periodically to prevent the creation of a permanent easement that would cloud their exclusive property rights. For the same reason, city sidewalks may have embedded markers along the property line around a plaza or open area announcing this space not dedicated to indicate that although the public may use the space within the markers, it is still private property. If a property owner interferes with an easement upon their property in a manner that satisfies the requirements for adverse prescription, for example, locking the gates to a commonly used area, and nobody does anything about it, he will successfully extinguish the easement. This is another reason to quiet title after a successful adverse possession or adverse prescription. It clarifies the record of who should take action to preserve the adverse title or easement while evidence is still fresh. For example, given a deeded easement to use someone else's driveway to reach a garage, if a fence or permanently locked gate prevents the use, nothing is done to remove and circumvent the obstacle, and the statutory period expires, then the easement ceases to have any legal force although the deed held by the fee-simple owner stated that the owner's interest was subject to the easement. Strictly speaking, prescription works in a different way to adverse possession. Adverse possession is concerned with the extinction of the title of the original owner by a rule of limitation of actions. Prescription, on the other hand, is concerned with acquiring a right that did not previously exist. In the law of England and Wales, adverse possession and prescription are treated as being entirely different doctrines. The former being entirely statutory deriving from the Limitation Act 1980, the latter being possible under purely common law principles. Non-common law jurisdictions Some non-common law jurisdictions have laws similar to adverse possession. For example, Louisiana has a legal doctrine called acquisitive prescription, which is derived from French law. Theory Adverse possession exists to cure potential or actual defects in real estate titles by putting a statute of limitations on possible litigation over ownership and possession. Because of the doctrine of adverse possession, a landowner can be secure in title to their land. Otherwise, long-lost heirs of any former owner, possessor or lien holder of centuries past could come forward with a legal claim on the property. The doctrine of adverse possession prevents this. This means the law may be used to reward a person who possesses the land of another for a requisite period of time. 
Failure of a landowner to exercise and defend their property rights for a certain period may result in the permanent loss of the landowner's interest in the property. In economic terms, adverse possession encourages and rewards productive use of land. Now a word from our sponsor. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Law School of America. Mitigating Circumstances Some countries allow conditions that affect the balance of the mind to be regarded as mitigating circumstances. This means that a person may be found guilty of manslaughter on the basis of diminished responsibility rather than being found guilty of murder, if it can be proved that the killer was suffering from a condition that affected their judgment at the time. Depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and medication side effects are examples of conditions that may be taken into account when assessing responsibility. Insanity Mental disorder may apply to a wide range of disorders including psychosis caused by schizophrenia and dementia and excuse the person from the need to undergo the stress of a trial as to liability. Usually, sociopathy and other personality disorders are not legally considered insanity, because of the belief they are the result of free will in many societies. In some jurisdictions, following the pre-trial hearing to determine the extent of the disorder, the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity may be used to get a not guilty verdict. This defense has two elements. 1. That the defendant had a serious mental illness disease, or defect. 2. That the defendant's mental condition, at the time of the killing, rendered the perpetrator unable to determine right from wrong, or that what they were doing was wrong. Under New York law, for example, Section 40.15 Mental Disease or Defect. In any prosecution for an offense, it is an affirmative defense that when the defendant engaged in the proscribed conduct, he lacked criminal responsibility by reason of mental disease or defect. Such lack of criminal responsibility means that at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacked substantial capacity to know or appreciate either, 1. The nature and consequences of such conduct, or 2. That such conduct was wrong. NY Penal Law, Section 40.15 Under the French Penal Code Article 122-1 A person is not criminally liable who, when the act was committed, was suffering from a psychological or a neuropsychological disorder which destroyed his discernment or his ability to control his actions. A person who, at the time he acted, was suffering from a psychological or a neuropsychological disorder which reduced his discernment or impeded his ability to control his actions, remains punishable, however, the court shall take this into account when it decides the penalty and determines its regime. Those who successfully argue a defense based on a mental disorder are usually referred to mandatory clinical treatment until they are certified safe to be released back into the community, rather than prison. A criminal defendant is often presented with the option of pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Thus, a finding of insanity results in a not guilty verdict, although the defendant is placed in a state treatment facility where they could be kept for years or even decades. Postpartum Depression Postpartum Depression also known as postnatal depression, is recognized in some countries as a mitigating factor in cases of infanticide. According to Dr. Susan Friedman, 
Two dozen nations have infanticide laws that decrease the penalty for mothers who kill their children of up to one year of age. The United States does not have such a law, but mentally ill mothers may plead not guilty by reason of insanity. In the law of the Republic of Ireland, infanticide was made a separate crime from murder in 1949, applicable for the mother of a baby under one year old where the balance of her mind was disturbed by reason of her not having fully recovered from the effect of giving birth to the child or by reason of the effect of lactation consequent upon the birth of the child. Since independence, death sentences for murder in such cases had always been commuted, the new act was intended to eliminate all the terrible ritual of the black cap and the solemn words of the judge pronouncing sentence of death in those cases, where it is clear to the court and to everybody, except perhaps the unfortunate accused, that the sentence will never be carried out. In Russia, murder of a newborn child by the mother has been a separate crime since 1996. Unintentional For a killing to be considered murder in 9 out of 50 states in the U.S., there normally needs to be an element of intent. A defendant may argue that they took precautions not to kill, that the death could not have been anticipated, or was unavoidable. As a general rule, manslaughter constitutes reckless killing, but manslaughter also includes criminally negligent, for example, grossly negligent, homicide. Unintentional killing that results from an involuntary action generally cannot constitute murder. After examining the evidence, a judge or jury, depending on the jurisdiction, would determine whether the killing was intentional or unintentional. Diminished capacity. In those jurisdictions using the Uniform Penal Code, such as California, diminished capacity may be a defense. For example, Dan White used this defense to obtain a manslaughter conviction, instead of murder, in the assassination of Mayor George Muscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. Afterward, California amended its penal code to provide as a matter of public policy there shall be no defense of diminished capacity diminished responsibility, or irresistible impulse in a criminal action. Aggravating Circumstances Murder with specified aggravating circumstances is often punished more harshly. Depending on the jurisdiction, such circumstances may include Premeditation Poisoning Murder of a child Murder of a police officer, judge, firefighter or witness to a crime Murder of a pregnant woman Crime committed for pay or other reward such as contract killing, exceptional brutality or cruelty, methods which are dangerous to the public, for example, explosions, arson, shooting in a crowd etc., murder for a political cause, murder committed in order to conceal another crime or facilitate its commission, hate crimes, which occur when a perpetrator targets a victim because of their perceived membership in a certain social group, and, treachery, for example, Heimtuck in German law. In the United States and Canada, these murders are referred to as first-degree or aggravated murders. Murder, under English criminal law, always carries a mandatory life sentence, but is not classified into degrees. Penalties for murder committed under aggravating circumstances are often higher, under English law, than the 15-year minimum non-parole period that otherwise serves as a starting point for a murder committed by an adult. Felony Murder Rule a legal doctrine in some common law jurisdictions broadens the crime of murder, when an offender kills in the commission of a dangerous crime, regardless of intent, he or she is guilty of murder. The felony murder rule is often justified by its supporters as a means of deterring dangerous felonies, but the case of Ryan Hulla shows it can be used very widely. Year and a day rule. In some common law jurisdictions, a defendant accused of murder is not guilty if the victim survives for longer than one year and one day after the attack. 
This reflects the likelihood that if the victim dies, other factors will have contributed to the cause of death, breaking the chain of causation, and also means that the responsible person does not have a charge of murder hanging over their head indefinitely. Subject to any statute of limitations, the accused could still be charged with an offense reflecting the seriousness of the initial assault. With advances in modern medicine, most countries have abandoned a fixed time period and test causation on the facts of the case. This is known as delayed death and cases where this was applied or was attempted to be applied go back to at least 1966. In England and Wales, the year-and-a-day rule was abolished by the Law Reform, Year-and-a-day Rule, Act 1996. However, if death occurs three years or more after the original attack then prosecution can take place only with the Attorney General's approval. In the United States, many jurisdictions have abolished the rule as well. Abolition of the rule has been accomplished by enactment of statutory criminal codes, which had the effect of displacing the common law definitions of crimes and corresponding defenses. In 2001 the Supreme Court of the United States held that retroactive application of a state Supreme Court decision abolishing the year-and-a-day rule did not violate the ex post facto clause of Article I of the United States Constitution. The potential effect of fully abolishing the rule can be seen in the case of 74-year-old William Barnes, charged with the murder of a Philadelphia police officer Walter T. Barkley Jr., whom he had shot nearly 41 years previously. Barnes had served 16 years in prison for attempting to murder Barkley, but when the policeman died on August 19, 2007, this was alleged to be from complications of the wounds suffered from the shooting, and Barnes was charged with his murder. He was acquitted on May 24, 2010. Causes Martin Daly and Marco Wilson of McMaster University have claimed that several aspects of homicides, including the genetic relations or proximity between murderers and their victims, as in the Cinderella effect, can often be explained by the evolution theory or evolutionary psychology. Peter Morrell identified the following sets of motives for murder. Lust, the murderer seeks to kill rivals to obtain objects of his or her sexual desire. Love, the murderer seeks to mercy kill a baby or partner with a major deformity or incurable cancer. Loathing, the murderer seeks to kill a loathed person, such as an abusive parent, or members of a loathed group or culture. Loot the murderer seeks some form of financial gain. However, Morale states that finding a motive for murder does not go far enough to explain murder. Most people experience lust, love, and loathing, and seek loot in the sense of wishing to be free from financial concerns. However, the vast majority of people do not commit murder. He identifies the following risk factors in what can lead one to commit murder. Testosterone, the primary male sex hormone is correlated with competitive and assertive behavior. Reduction in serotonin increases likelihood of impulsive hostile behavior. Alteration in the breakdown of glucose appears to affect mood and behavior. Hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia can both lead to aggression. Consumption of alcohol can lead to reduced self-control. Environmental pollutants circulating in the body are linked to heightened aggression. Malnutrition from eating too much junk food can provoke aggressive behavior and even murder. Several studies have shown a correlation between murder rates and poverty. A 2000 study showed that regions of the state of Sao Paulo and Brazil with lower income also had higher rates of murder. Etymology The modern English word murder descends from the Proto-Indo-European, P.I.E., Mr. Trauma, which meant killing, a noun derived from Pimer to die. The Germanic languages are the only ones to have saved this pi instrumental noun. Proto-Germanic in fact had two nouns derived from this word, later merging into the modern English noun, mirth or death, 
killing, murder, directly from Pi Mr. Trom, when sold English Morther secret or unlawful killing of a person, murder, mortal sin, crime, punishment, torment, misery, and Murthriho murderer, homicide, from the verb Murthrayana to murder, giving Old English Murthra homicide, murder, murderer. There was a third word for murder in Proto-Germanic, continuing Pi Mr. Tostead, compare Latin Moors, giving Proto-Germanic Murtha death, killing, murder in Old English Morth death, crime, murder, compare German Mord. The D first attested in Middle English Mordry, Mordry, murder, Mordry could have been influenced by Old French Mordry, itself derived from the Germanic noun via Frankish Murthra, compare Old High German Murdrio, Murdero, though the same sound development can be seen with Burden from Burthen. The alternative Murther, attested up to the 19th century, springs directly from the Old English forms. Middle English Mordry is a verb from Anglo-Saxon Murthrian from Proto-Germanic Murthrayana, or, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, from the noun. Use of the term. In many countries, in news reports, out of concern for being accused of defamation, Journalists are generally careful not to identify a suspect as a murderer until the suspect is convicted of murder in a court of law. After arrest, for example, journalists may instead write that the person was arrested on suspicion of murder, or, after a prosecutor files charges, as an accused murderer. Opponents of abortion consider abortion a form of murder. In some countries, a fetus is a legal person who can be murdered, and killing a pregnant woman is considered a double homicide. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.